This morning we look particularly at the 12 unlikely men that Jesus chose to be his apostles. How he did so, why he did so, and how he worked through them to do mighty things. Discipleship ought to be the the theme, ought to be the key to what we see as we look at the relationship of Jesus and these 12 men in particular. Discipleship, it's instruction and it's imitation. That we would teach, but we would also say, watch. I think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, follow me, or follow my pattern, look to my behavior, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I would say, Paul is saying that, follow me as I follow Christ, saying that that is my desire, my intent, and follow me only so far as I stand consistent in the pattern of the Lord Jesus. Discipleship has to be accompanied by love. It has to be covered in love. It has to be filled with love. We lovingly instruct those. We lovingly lead those in godliness, those who are coming along with us. We ought to be, and we'll hear this repeated throughout this message today, we ought to be, for all of our lives, both a disciple and a discipler. We ought to be those who are constantly being taught and and learning. Now, Paul warns about those who would who would constantly be heaping up for themselves knowledge but never learning. We ought to, ought to always be learning and we ought to always be applying, patterning, and passing on to the next generation. The Bible t- teaches that this is our pattern. Uh, we think about in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is the instruction we have. Philippians, Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 2 Timothy 3.10 says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my faith, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution, and my suffering. 3 John says, Beloved, do not imitate evil. Imitate good. Discipleship is one of the things the church must do. Must do. Just a couple of weeks ago, your officers gathered together, and we talked about, as we had in worship a couple of Sundays before, the, the four things that the church has to be about. It has to be about discipleship. It has to be about evangelism and missions. It has to be about glorifying God, that is, we are to be a worshiping people, and it ought to be about edification. Edification here in the midst that we would, would lovingly embrace and care for one another as a flock. These are things that we must be about as a church. Discipleship. A key among them. We must accurately and practically teach the Word of God. Ad- accurately and practically. That means that we don't just talk about it on Sunday morning and then go do what we want to do the rest of the week. It doesn't mean we go do what we want to do the rest of the week, and as some traditions would hold, then you just show up on Sunday and you get forgiveness for all the stuff you did the week before. That's, that's not what, what following Christ is about. It's about our, our behavior and our life is the same as we're in the office, when we're at home, and when we're here at the church. And I, I tell people a little bit jokingly, but a whole lot more seriously, when they would come to me as a, as a chaplain or the pastor, and, and I would talk to them, we'd talk about prayer for one another. And it was always, I was always so thankful that when I would talk to, uh, to men and women and ask, well, how can I pray for you? And, and they would, would tell me something, and I would say, well, we pray about it right then, and I'll continue to pray for you. And it was always a wonderful thing when, when someone would then ask, well, chaplain, pastor, what can I pray for you about? 
Men and women who realize that my prayers don't hold more weight simply because some folks call me reverend. I tell people in those prayer times, please pray for me, but also pray for my wife and my son. I said, because you so often, you get, you get the pastor. You get the chaplain. She gets a grumpy husband. He gets a surly dad who sometimes wants to just be left alone and wants to be grumpy and wallow in my grumpiness. But my life, your life, our lives need to be consistent here, there, and everywhere. And that ought to be a real prayer, not that they would be able to tolerate the grumpy husband and the surly dad, but that their grumpy husband and surly dad would be more consistently the man of God that I need to be. We ought to live practically and teach accurately the word of God that the whole church family would develop and to grow in a comprehensively Christian outlook on life. We ought to be, as Ephesians teaches, that we ought to be raising up a flock, an army, to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is not done in its totality by your pastor. Neither is it done by the very godly elders and deacons that God has appointed to be a part of this flock. Our job is first and foremost to equip each of you for the work of ministry. That is our work. Now, that doesn't mean, and, and, and instructing and, and, uh, and giving you that uh, equipping, we need to be modeling it as well. But this is discipleship. This is what we ought to do. True discipleship as we rise up, as we lie down, as we go out, as we come back in, walking the Word of God, living the Word of God, talking about the Word of God, following in the footsteps of Jesus. That ought to be the way that we awake in the morning, make our prayer before God, and at the end of the day, in evaluation, look back and say, did I today glorify God by walking in the pattern of my Savior? Look at what we have here in Mark chapter 3, picking up in verse 7. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from the beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because it's a crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain, and he called to him those whom he had desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named the apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Borneges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we examine it, as we discuss it, as we strive to live it out, Father, that we would be faithful in discipling and learning. We praise you in the name of Jesus. May your word dwell in us richly, that we would walk faithfully in you. Amen. This is a time of incredible popularity in the life of Jesus. 
Now, understand this, we're only three chapters into the book of Mark, but really, if you look at the chronology of the life of Jesus, we're actually about a year and a half into his public ministry. We've already covered this amount of time. Mark isn't it Mark in time. He's going through it very rapidly. Uh, about his three-year ministry, we think about something, uh, all the extraordinary things that have happened so far. Healing, teaching with authority, a ministry that, that no one had ever encountered before. And B.B. Warfield, the, thin, uh, the Princeton theologian, speaks about this particular time in the life of Jesus. He described what's going on by the description here in Mark as being a day and a time when disease and death had almost been eliminated from the region of Capernaum. So involved was Jesus in this region that it says the, the countless throngs were coming and pressing in. And as they pressed in, he was concerned about even being crushed. And he said he had healed so many and, and others who had diseases pressed in just to touch him, and they found healing. Halfway through his public ministry, Jesus, at this time of unbelievable popularity, chooses now to call unto him the apostles. He calls to him those who would walk alongside him, his twelve, his apostolos, that is, those who were sent out. Very strictly applied here to speak about these twelve. Now, Understand in the New Testament, we, we use the word apostles in a couple of different ways. And we do speak specifically about the apostolic ministry. And we need to be careful to, to make sure we understand that, that many are sent out, but these were sent in a particular way. And we do see in this day of Jesus, the apostles, and in the establishment of the early church, the apostles used in a way that has been unlike any other in church history. For as God himself became present among us. God himself tabernacling among us in the person of Jesus. Those he surrounded himself with to establish the church were under very specific and powerful opposition. As we see great healing, we also see great inundation of demonic and devilish attacks against Jesus. And the apostles uniquely equipped in that day to proclaim, to establish the church, and to preach in his name. There were many in the life of Jesus. We have to remember that it was just not 12 that he surrounded himself with. There were, there were literally thousands who came to hear him. Thousands who came to hear him preach as one who had authority, like, not like the scribes and the Pharisees who simply quoted other people. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I say to you, it's my authority that establishes this. I say to you, this is the truth. And thousands would gather in to hear him. Thousands would gather in to be healed. Now understand, those are the thousands that gathered. There was a time when he said, now are these things too hard for you? And many turned and walked away. So there was who listened for a season, but then walked away. There were those who, who shouted on the streets as Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem on, the, on the, the colt, the foal of the donkey. As he came into Jerusalem, and they cried out, Hosanna, at the triumphal entry, but many of them certainly were among those who, who shouted, at Pilate, that they would rather have Barabbas released and that Jesus should be crucified. Now, there are the thousands and the many who surrounded Jesus in his teaching. There were the 72 that Jesus sent out. And then there were these 12. And even among the 12, we need to, need to see that there were, there were three, Peter, James, and John, that, that Jesus spent extra time with. We see them on the mountain of transfiguration when they saw Moses and Elijah there along with Jesus. They heard the voice of God saying, this is my son, listen to him. They were the ones who were in the garden even though they couldn't stay awake in that time of prayer. They were the ones in the garden closest to Jesus. 
And we even find in Scripture one designated as that disciple that Jesus loved. The ministry of Jesus was full of people. The ministry of Jesus was ministry in the midst of others, not off by himself. We see times of being off by himself, times of prayer. We're going to talk about that. But Jesus, his pattern of ministry was in the midst of others because he loved others. Now, before we proceed, I want you to think for just a minute. Whose lives are intertwined with yours today? Who's, who walks with you? Who watches you? Who do you watch? Who listens to you and who do you listen to? Who is being blessed by God at work in your life? I've said it many times. We're, we're to be both disciple and discipler. We are to always be learning and we're to be leading. We're always to be following and we're always to be teaching others. We think about 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul talking to his uh, beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul, in one of his last writings, certainly the last to Timothy, believed to be his last uh, uh, writing at all, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you hear that? What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, it's not just pouring into Timothy, but pouring into many people. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice that when it speaks uh, about what you've heard, you've heard it in the midst of the multitude. You are to entrust it to faithful men, plural, and they would be able to teach others, also plural that it is to be a multiplication effect. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But let's look at, at what Jesus does here in selecting his disciples. Understand that this is in the midst of, of a great time of popularity, great crowds following Jesus, pressing in. The, uh, the demons are, are crying out. They're trying to, to usurp uh, the authority of what's going on. They were crying out, you're the Son of God, as if to diminish his message by them claiming it themselves. And he is telling them that they are not to make him known, that Christ will not be made known by the tongues of the wicked. Now, the, the, the truth of God, we, we see him at work in all things, uh, but these, these demonic forces are not to be the heralds and are not to preemptively or prematurely proclaim these truths that are ongoing and being revealed in God's perfect time. So what do we see? We first see Jesus' method. How does he call his disciples? The, the things that we see, and we see it in your outline here, uh, that there is a preparation, a time of preparation through prayer. Jesus on the mountain uh, in this time of prayer, uh, that these disciples are chosen by Jesus. It, it's not by a sign-up and application process. It is Jesus as he picks and as he chooses whom he will. And then we also see that they are in their call as he bids them to come and to follow, as he instructs and as he teaches, there is a consistent warning to count the cost. That Jesus is not selling a life that will be free from difficulty. He is not selling a product that is going to make your life easier. What he is doing is he is proclaiming a truth that will make your life eternal. That'd be a good spot for an amen if anybody chooses to. There we go. I know we're Presbyterians, but that's okay. That's all right. Jesus does not sell us a product that makes our lives easier. What he does is he proclaims a truth that makes our lives eternal. Thank you. Thank you. Now I know that you're awake. So what does he do? He goes up on the mountain. He prepares in this time of prayer. Verse 13, it says he went up on the mountain. Now, Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke, who is much better about writing down some of the, the particular details, in the parallel account in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. All night long, Jesus continued in prayer. Now think about that for a minute. And I want to, I want to challenge you with a, a misunderstanding. I think we, 
we, in, with a right intention, come about. We come about in reverence to Jesus. So very often, I believe we tend, I believe now, prove me wrong, I believe we tend to view Jesus' humanity as something more than real humanity. I think we tend to look at Jesus like Superman. But Jesus needed sleep. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. You can tell right here that Jesus was saying, look, if you press in on me, you're going to crush me. We see him weeping at, at the grave of Lazarus. We see him hungering. We see him thirst on the cross. We see him suffer. We see him die on the cross. We see the very real humanity of Jesus. And we think about this. Jesus needed to sleep at night. He needed sleep as we need sleep. And that's what he did. That's what he did. It was not that he led a life that was different than all the human things that we had to do, that we have to do. But on significant occasions, we see the vigil. We, we see that time of extended and passionate prayer before Almighty God. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. He is like us in every respect, tempted in every way that we are, in the same way that Peter, James, and John could not stay awake. They were tempted. We talked about that a week ago on the Wednesday night study in the prayer life of Jesus about them not being able to stay awake. I guarantee you that Jesus needed sleep as much as I need sleep. But he saw that he needed something more. He desired sleep, but he needed to pray. This significant moment of Jesus is bathed in prayer. Now, we are called to pray without ceasing, right? We find that 1 Thessalonians 5, pray always, pray without ceasing. But we have to carve out those times of deliberate, those divine appointments for uninterrupted and extended prayer. Now you can turn in your hymnal and we, we could all sing it, but I thought about singing it this morning, but I'm afraid that for some of us it might not be quite true just yet. We could sing the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, but I don't know how many of us can sing that experientially. I don't know how many of us can sing that saying, that has been a reality in my life, that I have spent a sweet hour in prayer with God. And sweet five minutes of prayer just doesn't sing well. Sweet hour of prayer. We find that we are called to a lifetime of prayer, right? I just finished, I'm in the midst of, of reading a, uh, a, a book on the life of George Mueller and watched a, a wonderful little biography. It's actually on Amazon. Uh, you can watch it if you stream through Amazon. Uh, it's called The Robber of the Cruel Streets. Uh, George Mueller, uh, the pastor in Bristol, um, uh, he was Prussian, uh, who came to, uh, uh, to Bristol, England. And what he did over the course of his life, he lived from 1805 to 1898, he raised in the dollars of that day $7.2 million dollars. He raised $7.2 million and never asked anyone for help. He never asked for the money. He, he was committed to going to the Lord for everything that he needed. And the money that he prayed for, the money that came in, the resources that came in, the food and the help that came in, was raised to establish 117 schools and orphanages there in England to take care of over 120,000 young people. That was a lifetime spent in prayer. We are called upon to live a life of prayer, to, to, to always be in conversation with God. But, but we see here in the anticipation of him selecting his apostles a season of intense, consuming prayer. Sleep would have been wonderful, but Jesus needed to pray. And Luke 6 says, all night long he continued in prayer. 
And so what did he do? He then went and he summoned his disciples. And he appointed them. Now, it was the norm. It was the norm for disciples that day to select for themselves a teacher, to look around and saying, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you and let you be my teacher. But we find in this case, Jesus selects his men. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit. It's the idea of his very deliberate call to these men. And he even establishes his authority in that as he calls them, many of them, he gave new names. We see this to be that practice, right? Uh, Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. We see Simon renamed Peter. James and John, he calls them to be those thunderous brothers, right? Fiery, thunderous preachers and a bit uh, argumentative at that. Now, in those cultures, to, to name something in the very same way that Adam was given the authority to name all the animals, that was, that was exercising authority over it, that Jesus had the authority over his disciples. He calls them. Jesus chooses his disciples, but also understand that he does call them to count the cost in ministry. There is opposition. We see it right here in the midst of the text. Look with me uh, right here in, in Mark. They're warned to count the cost. Verse 20 and verse 21, it says that Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he was out of his mind. They believed him to be crazy right there at the selection of the the apostles. You have to think about uh, the idea that they would be living from that point forward a very dangerous life, a very dangerous life. Even those close to Jesus would say he is out of his mind. They'll be looking, so many will be looking for every opportunity to destroy Jesus. Jesus hadn't even begun to speak yet openly about his betrayal, about his crucifixion, about his death. That's going to come. But what does he say? If anyone would come after me, he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Following Jesus is costly. Following those who follow Jesus is costly. Bidding others to follow you as you follow Christ is costly. We have to understand that we are to count the cost and not look to Jesus as being a vitamin that we can take and be a little bit healthier tomorrow than today. When Jesus bids a man to come, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. I don't mean to say that to be depressing. I mean to say that to be to give you great hope in saying that the life that you receive in following Jesus is greater than the life that you give up. The words of another great evangelist, another great missions uh, voice that was silenced far too soon, who said, a man is no fool. A man is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to earn that which he cannot lose. The life that we receive is so great. So eternal, so worth it, but we must count the cost of ministry today. Now let's look at Jesus' motive. Why is he calling disciples? Right here in the midst of the text, we we have to ask, why is he calling disciples? Why not just continue on? He's done so with this this big, big group of this throng following him. Why is he calling these particular to be apostles? Well, first, I believe that he is desiring and he's seeking out faithful fellowship. 
We see right there in the text, verse 14, right? It says, he called them that they may be with him, right? He said he called them that they might be with him. Jesus loved them. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor up in Columbia, South Carolina, he, he speaks of it this way. He says, Jesus loved them. He taught them. He grieved over their faults. And we can even say, when somebody says that, it makes puts me on edge. We can even say, we know we're going to some extreme here. We can even say that Jesus needed them just because he was truly and fully human. Yes, no Superman, a real man, fully man, fully God. To be truly and fully human means to be made for fellowship. It's never good for man to be alone. We saw that in Genesis 2, didn't we? As benediction was pronounced over all those things in creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then when God looked and he had created man, and in creating man saw that man was alone and there's no helper suitable, he said it is no good. Not a benediction, but a malediction. And anybody that's been around us guys when we hang out by ourselves without the wonderful helpmate that God has intended for us, we can say with agreement, it's not good. It's not good. And it is good that we would have that right and perfect and wondrous fellowship. Jesus called these men to be his apostles because he was no lonely outsider. Jesus was not one who just dwelt on the fringes and, and, and went off to just be with himself, but he caused 12 to be with him for fellowship, for company. Now, sure, these men would be a source of frustration. James and John, those thunderous brothers again, what are they going to do? I mean, I can imagine just like dad and mom taking a trip down the highway in the station wagon and trying to drive and deal with the children in the back seat at the same time. I don't mean to make light of it, but I, I see it to be very true. Jesus, like dealing with little children, that these men who were following along in his dust as they were walking along with him, and they're bickering and they're arguing, and, and Jesus says, all right, what are you all fighting about now? And they say, well, we're just discussing who's going to be greatest when you come into your kingdom. I can see my Savior, not in a sinful way, but throwing up his hands and saying, do you, do you not get it yet? There are times of frustration, but, but it was a source of joy for our Savior. Relationships, yes, they're messy, but they are necessary. They're needed. We need to be in those relationships. But not only did, did he desire to have that faithful fellowship with them, but he was, was uh, appointing them to be the leaders for tomorrow. He was calling these disciples, these apostles now, uh, to be those who would lead, those who would learn, uh, those upon whom uh, the church would be built. They would listen to incredible sermons as they followed Jesus. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, we can read the words of Jesus, but, but just for a moment, what an amazing thing it would be to hear. And one day we shall hear the voice of Jesus, and what an amazing thing it will be. But to, to hear Jesus preach. To, to see Jesus returning, uh, how he would react to the hostility around him. That they would watch him care for the broken and the needy. They would watch him rise and walk in the morning, and he would serve and he would love. And they, they would minister. They would minister in their, in their ministry with him. They would be sent out. They would, would serve, and they would come back, and, and they would ask questions. Jesus, why was it that we couldn't cast out those demons and you could? And he would teach them and he'd learn and they'd grow. This is that discipling relationship. And he was building them to be the leaders of tomorrow. And the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he says, now as you go forth, as you make disciples, what are you to do? Teach them to deserve all that I have commanded you. So what you've learned from me, pass these things along. And we think about these men. These men, the testimony of Peter in Matthew 16. 
when Peter looks at him and for, for once in this, in this early part of Peter's ministry with Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, and looking at that truth and looking at his apostles, he speaks about this being the foundation upon which the church will be built such that the gates of hell can't even prevail. And not only is it faithful fellowship and leaders for tomorrow, but it is a model for us to adopt in ministry. The best discipleship takes place in in small groups such as this. That's the primary approach that Jesus takes. We we seldom see Jesus simply dealing one-on-one with people. We see occasions, the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, we see occasions as he's speaking one-on-one, but the predominance of his ministry is spent one on smaller groups. Harry Reader in his book, The Leadership Dynamic, the pastor of uh, Briarwood Presbyterian Church, uh, speaks about this, extolling the fact that we ought to be looking not simply to replace ourselves by finding some one person that will follow in our footsteps, uh, but that we would be about a ministry of multiplication. Not just calling one who would call one, but calling and working with several who then would pass it on again. 2 Timothy 2.2, pass these things along. These things that you've heard in the multitude, pass them along to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. You see the ministry of multiplication taking there. It's a great model of ministry that Jesus has called these 12 to follow. And then we see not only Jesus' method, Jesus' motive, but then we see Jesus' men specifically. We look and we see particularly the men as they're listed out here. They were diverse men, a a, a widely diverse men. Some of them we know a lot about. There's some of them, Thaddeus. You know, he'd be that guy that's sitting in the corner of the church and you kind of look up and say, who's that fellow? I don't know, that's uh, Thaddeus, I think. Don't know anything really that much about him, but there's some that we, we know so much about. And also what we see in Jesus calling a diverse man, I think has an incredibly contemporary application to us today. It is a picture of the way that the church ought to be by him calling this widely diverse group of people that it transcends the barriers that this world would impose, the barriers of money, the barriers of job and class, and even the barriers of politics. Think about two men in particular that Jesus called. Matthew. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a Jew. What did Matthew do? He stole from other Jews to pay Rome. He was a tax collector working for the Roman occupying power. And then there was another of the apostles, Simon the Zealot. And what he was doing was he was working for the overthrow of Roman power. The tax gatherer and the tax hater were both right there in the midst of the the apostles. Probably made for some good discussion along the way. But the very unpatriotic Jew who who was a, a, a lackey for the oppressive government and the Jewish patriot who constantly was looking uh, to overthrow the, the foreign yoke of oppression. But these two, these two found commonality as they followed Jesus Christ as their hope, as their Lord, as their Savior. Oh, is that not a powerful picture for the way our pews ought to be populated in a day like today? I'm not saying that political world issues are not important, that our opinions Uh, don't have biblical implications and and references to them. But it is saying that first and foremost, we need to be about proclaiming Jesus Christ and uniting with those. And we can work on the details and the loving fellowship of believers in Christ. 
but we need to see that, that, that it's Christ that unites. So these were diverse men, but they're also ordinary men. It would have been said of these men that they were nobodies, 12 country folk, men of no consequence. They hadn't gone to rabbinical school. And did you notice that none of them, as you start looking at the, the lives of them, none of them uh, was from the south, none of them was from Judea, none of them would have been from Jerusalem. Now, you might would have thought it would have been an astute thing, a good thing for Jesus to go and to pick uh, some, some powerful people, at least a couple of representatives from the capital city, right? But Jesus is no uh, respecter of persons, and he picked these men. And it even says we understand that their accents uh, were different. I, I think about traveling the world and, and traveling the world and throwing in y'all in my conversation and telling people that I'm fixing to come see them. And they make all kind of assumptions about my level of education and how long I've actually been wearing shoes. <laughs> and the apostles that Jesus called, they would have been making equally uh, equal assumptions. Matter of fact, we even read about that. Remember in the time when, when Peter was accused at the arrest of Jesus? In, in Matthew 26, uh, one, of the, one of the folks in the crowd, they point to Peter, they point to the others and say, I know you're with him. Your accent accuses you. Your accent betrays you. You sound like one of those rednecks that's been following Jesus. That's the Brandon Bowman translation. Now we need to, we need to understand that in looking at Jesus, he calls and he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And ordinary people into ordinary things of ministry accomplish extraordinary things for God. We, we so often feel like we are not being used of God because we are not doing the huge things. But understand this. We need to be exceptional in the ordinary things. We need to stand apart in the mundane things of life. Had one pastor do this, and I'll do it and quote him in case you get upset. The pastor, as he looked out among the congregation, said, you need to understand that I, I would be willing to place money if I were a betting man that nobody in this room is going to be written about in a history book. That in a few generations, there will be family members even that will be struggling to remember your name, where you lived, or what you did. He said, but that ought to exhort us to understand that faithfulness is found in the ordinary and the mundane things of life. How we talk to our family, how we live at work, how we drive down Main Street, the ordinary things of life. We need to be about following Jesus as ordinary men and women. And finally... Finally, these men are, are diverse, they're ordinary, but they're men who would serve. We need to understand that, that God calls us and he calls us to do. We saw that in the first couple of messages we looked at together in, in my ministry here in Ephesians 2. It says, by grace we've been saved by faith, that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any of us should boast, right? But verse 10 goes on to say, for we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? That we have been called to serve. We've been called to live a life that brings glory to God. And we think about these men. Look at who he called. Simon and James and John. We also see Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. We see Thaddeus. Now, when you read Luke, understand that Luke refers to this man as Judas, the other Judas, not the one who betrayed him. We also see Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. These are the people that 
that Jesus called. And with the exception of Judas, who betrayed Jesus and took his own life in despair, John was the one who would, would outlive the other apostles. He would be one who, by tradition, it's understood, they tried to boil him in oil, he survived, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, and he lived and died of natural causes after having been used of God to write the book of Revelation. Right? But the others, all the other men would lay down their lives. They would lay down their lives for the gospel message. These men who were terrified and scattered when Jesus was arrested, nobodies at their calling, became mightily used because they were faithful and equipped by the Spirit to do the things that God intended for them to do. Now we think about the labors of of these men. The church was built. And they laid the foundation with their lives. And we read the the stories. We see only a couple of accounts in the New Testament of the death of these apostles, but we read the accounts of Peter and Andrew and others who, though they were terrified when Jesus was arrested, would never, ever recant. That even under the hand of torture, they said, I will preach Jesus Christ until I have no more breath. And this is who we've been called to be, apostles in the sent forth sense, disciples in the following sense, but men and women who live and learn and walk and teach and follow and lead, that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed. Ordinary men and women in ordinary lives, but extraordinarily loved by a Heavenly Father whose name we praise. Amazingly saved by a Savior who laid down His life for you. We're more than 12. We're no more unlikely, but we are no less loved than these men. As they turn the world upside down, so can we, as the Lord uses us for His glory. Pray with me. Almighty God, we praise you for this, this your word. We thank you, Almighty God, that it is so encouraging as we find, Father, these simple men equipped and trained and loved. Father, use. Would you use us? Father, we, we tend to, to view these men as, again, more than human like us. But we see their weakness. And in their weakness, we see your strength. Father, would you use us as you have called us, as you have saved us, as you have instructed us, as we follow you, Lord God, may we lead others. Father, may we seek out those relationships in our lives that we would both be discipled and we would disciple others, that we would both follow and lead as we stand in that great train of faith headed for eternity. Lord, would you use us to turn Millbrook upside down, Alabama, in this world, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.